And we are turning to Acts chapter 15 for our next uh, sermon in this series, this uh, sequential uh, study of the Acts of the Apostles. It's on page 923. If you don't have a uh, Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn there and to follow along. And we will read the first 35 verses. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, 
Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Ligonier uh, Ministries recently released their uh, findings from the uh, 2022 State of Theology Survey. If you haven't heard of this before, every two years, uh, Ligonier Ministries partners with Lifeway Research Center uh, to kind of take the theological temperature of the American populace to inform Christians kind of the, the world uh, that they're living in and the state of theology uh, of the average American. And they, they give, I think it's around 30, 35 statements, and they ask these uh, people that they're surveying to say, do you dis- strongly disagree, disagree, you're not sure, do you um, somewhat agree, do you strongly agree with the statement? Statement 14 of the survey reads like this. God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. I'll say that one more time. This is the statement that was posed to the people being surveyed. God counts a person as righteous, not because of their works, but only because of their faith in Jesus Christ. 33% of U.S. respondents disagreed with that statement. 10% weren't sure. Um, But here's what's really sad. Of those people who disagreed or weren't sure, which was 43%, of that group, 20% identified themselves as evangelicals. So 20% of people are saying, we're evangelical, which means literally gospel people. It's in the name. Evangel, right? Gospel. 20% of them surveyed didn't get the gospel. Don't understand the gospel. And the question I have for you today is, do you understand the gospel? Are you able to articulate it? Do you know what it takes to be saved? There is nothing more important for you to grasp today or any day than that. That salvation is a free gift of God's grace that is dependent not on anything that you or I could ever do, but is entirely dependent on what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's the gospel. God counts a person as righteous, not because of their works, but only because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, we agree. We affirm. That's the gospel. And it is such an important thing to get right. In Acts 15, the events that take place here, they arise when people within the church got that message wrong. And we see how certain leaders in the church labor To get the gospel right and then to get the gospel out. Let's consider that together.
for a few minutes this morning. Paul and Barnabas, you'll note, they're back. At the end of chapter 14, they've returned to Antioch, where they had initially been sent or commissioned on their first missionary journey. And we're told at the end of chapter 14 that, that the people were encouraged um, by their report. In verse 27, they gathered the church together and declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the, the Gentiles. But then something happens. Believers from Judea come, from Jerusalem, uh, and they kind of shut down this party. Everybody's so excited how, how well Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey went. And then they come to reign on their parade. These men were teaching, according to verse 1, that you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. Uh, they were terribly misguided. And so we're going to consider first how a faction of the church at that time was getting the gospel wrong. They're getting the gospel wrong. And you can understand how their insistence upon circumcision would have... Um, had implication for Paul and Barnabas's recently completed journey, right? Because now the question is, did any of it matter? All that work that they had done, all those conversions that they'd seen, were they actually conversions? Were those Gentiles actually saved? Because none of them had been required to be circumcised. So were they saved or are they like halfway there to being uh, saved? Verse 5 tells us that some of the most vocal proponents of this view... Uh, were actually former Pharisees, much like Paul himself. They, they were uh, uh, Jewish Pharisees who now had become Christians. And, and think about it. These are people who had been raised on the law, who had been trained in the law, who had lived the law their whole life. And it's, it's pretty difficult for them to say now the law maybe doesn't matter as much as they had been taught to believe their whole life long. Old habits die hard, so to speak. They were finding it impossible to dispense with the law as a means of salvation. It had been ingrained in their minds that it was conformity to God's law, the Mosaic law, especially with all of its rituals and its regulations, dietary restrictions, all of that, that it was faithfulness to those rules that was the sign uh, or the real test of true faith. Now, the issue is not just circumcision. Circumcision, though, was kind of the sign that you bought into the whole system. So it's, it's the entire complex of, of those Mosaic laws that they're insisting upon. Verse 5 again. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. All of those things that we find in, in the end of Exodus and in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That's what they're in, insisting upon here. So they say, you cannot be saved. This again is, is verse 1. You cannot be saved Unless you are circumcised. And I just want to make really clear to you that if you ever start a sentence saying you cannot be saved unless there is no proper way to complete that sentence except from saying unless you repent and believe. That is the only way that a biblically faithful person can speak. That's, that's what the Bible teaches us. You cannot be saved unless, the only answer is unless you believe, unless you repent. But they got that wrong. They got the gospel wrong, and we can easily get it wrong too. We assume that there might be additions. For them, it was Jesus. Yes, we love Jesus, but it's Jesus and Moses. And we can add things too. You cannot be saved unless, what, what do we say? Unless you have, maybe we think, uh, assurance, unless you're really sure that you're saved, you can't be saved. Uh, unless you have 
good works, unless you do charity, unless you, you come to church, unless you go to a certain kind of church, unless you vote a certain kind of way. We, we sort of pile up this list of things that we think, well, really, this is the true mark of, of salvation. And we love to speculate about these things, don't we? Aren't we always asking questions like, well, can you really be a Christian if fill in the blank? I mean, I get questions from you guys about that kind of stuff all the time. Can somebody really be a Christian pastor if they do this, if they do that? Now, we want to be clear, right? We, we want to clarify between two things, the means of salvation and the results of salvation. Or, in other words, how you're saved and then what happens when you're saved. The means of salvation, how you're saved, is grace, 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 grace alone. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Nothing else. That's how we're saved. But once we're saved, is there a result? Yes, of course there is. There's a changed life. Good works always accompany that salvation. There will be new affections, new habits, different speech, and so forth. And now when we don't see that kind of result, that kind of fruit in our lives or the lives of others, it might be legitimate to ask if, if that saving faith was really there. But let's not reverse the equation. We're not saved by those things. And that's where the people from Judea were confused. You cannot be saved unless, what? They don't say unless you repent and believe. They say unless you follow the law of God. The law of Moses. These rituals, these customs. But Jesus doesn't say that. John eight twenty four, Unless you believe that I am from above, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe. Luke thirteen three. Unless you repent, Jesus says, you will perish. That's Jesus' answer to what it takes to be saved. And so verse 2 shows us that when these people come and they have the gospel all mixed up, Paul and Barnabas, they, they, they have no small dissent and debate with these believers. While it's never ideal for Christians to have dissensions uh, amongst one another, if there's anything that's worth fighting about in the Christian community, it's this. It's the gospel. It's making sure you have the gospel right. And so they take it seriously, and they recognize that they're not going to be able to, to come to a conclusion Right there and right then, just with, with themselves. And so they arrange a coalition of elders and pastors to meet with the apostles in Jerusalem to settle this question. So we see, secondly, the effort that is made to get the gospel right. The gospel is wrong here from these people coming from Jerusalem, and so efforts made to get now the gospel right. And the fact that they would make such an effort and undertake this long and arduous journey back to Jerusalem uh, it, and hear one another out shows the clear uh, connection that the church experienced in those days. They didn't see themselves as autonomous units, that they all kind of did their own thing. Uh, they came together, they, they discussed together what one church was doing affected the whole. Uh, moreover, when a decision is reached, when a verdict is pronounced, it's not said that this just applies to the Christians in Jerusalem. They send out this circular letter and says, this is what all churches should be doing, and, and the churches submit to that. They recognize that there is um, this interconnectedness amongst the church. Um, you know, it almost sounds like Presbyterianism. Acts 15 has been used as the greatest proof text for uh, Presbyterian polity. Don't worry, I will spare you that sermon today. We have more important things to discuss like getting the gospel right. That's what they're working on. Notice three steps that take place um, in this effort made by the council at Jerusalem. Uh, kind of three um, steps that are recorded. And that is first uh, Peter's explanation, uh, Paul and Barnabas' experience, and then Jude's 
I'm sorry, James' exposition, First Peter's explanation. Peter stands up after they've been, they've been debating. You kind of sense they're at a stalemate. They've been talking about this for hours, maybe for days, more likely for days. And then Peter says, okay, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to tell you what I think this is all about. And he explains that salvation, we're here at verse um, 7 and following now. Peter stands up and he says, salvation is up to God, not up to us. It's not up to us. And he saves, and he's allowed to save whoever he wants to save and however he wants to save them, Peter says. Uh, We shouldn't impose our wisdom on God. That would be putting God to the test. And he says that this divine prerogative, look at verse 7, it's the way it has been since the early days. Brothers, you know that in the early days, he's talking about since the beginning of the new covenant, since the, the New Covenant Church began since the early days. This is what God has made clear, and he did it through Peter. And he refers now to that important scene uh, early on in Acts, Acts chapter 10, of Peter uh, ministering to Cornelius, and Cornelius, that Gentile, being converted. Peter was the one through... uh, How does he put it here? Uh, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's what he's talking about. I was sent. God spoke through me and... Cornelius and thousands of other Gentiles were converted. And Peter, though, puts it all on, on God. It's God's prerogative. I was just the instrument. God and his grace is the cause of salvation. And then Peter goes on to say that God, by his spirit, is the one who cleanses the heart of all who believe. Look at verse 9. That he made no distinction between us and Jewish people, them, Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. It's an interesting image or language that Peter uses, right? The, de- the debate is about circumcision, and all the Jews would have known that, that circumcision was meant to be a representation of a, of a heart cleansing, right? Uh, Jeremiah talks about that. Ezekiel talks about that. And Peter says, but circumcision, we know this, guys. Circumcision never actually cleansed the heart. It only pointed to that. Ever since the beginning, it was always, and it will always be, the Spirit who does that work of internal cleansing. And that Spirit is the one who has cleansed the hearts of these Gentiles. And then in verse 10, Peter underscores what everyone there knew instinctively, but they wouldn't dare admit that the Mosaic law was an impossible law to keep an impossible burden to keep it was like a yoke he says a device right to keep an animal in line or to to keep a, a slave in bondage and peter confronts the jewish believers here and he says you can't even keep this law you never could none of our ancestors ever could you know what it's like to try to live up to this standard and it's impossible and if we can't live up to it why would you force these poor gentiles to try to live up to it as well that's really convicting what he says, right? Because nobody would dare admit that because they all loved the law. They thought the law was their golden ticket, right? And he says, but you know it's not. You know it's just a burden. It's a yoke that's impossible to keep. But he had learned of the light yoke of following Jesus. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, And my burden is light. My yoke is easy, he says. And we all serve something or someone. We do. Uh, We all have a yoke upon us. Is your yoke a burden or is it an easy, light yoke? The word that Jesus uses that's translated easy um, is 
isn't the easy that we're, we, we think of. It's not like it doesn't take any effort. It's actually, it's found elsewhere in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, kind is the same word found in Matthew 11.28 that's translated as easy. Jesus' yoke is kind. It's not cruel. That's why he says his burden is, is light or James will, or John will repeat that in his epistle, that his, bur- his commandments are not burdensome. Dane Ortland explains it like this. Jesus is using a kind of irony, saying that the yoke laid on his disciples is actually a non-yoke, for it's a yoke of kindness. And who could resist this? It's like telling a, a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver, only to hear him shout back, sputtering, No way, not me. This is hard enough. Drowning out here in these stormy waters. The last thing I need is that added burden of a life preserver around my body. See how foolish that would be. And so the question is, what yoke do you have upon you? What's kind of guiding your life, right? That yoke is that cross beam that keeps the oxen marching in a certain direction. What's the direction of your life? Is it, what's the yoke of your life? What's this burden that you have upon you? Is it the, the yoke of... Being better than the next guy, uh, of do-goodery, is it the the yoke of of just a little more? What's driving your life? Every yoke is a burden, except for that of Christ. His yoke isn't a burden; it's a it's it's like a buoy that that actually lifts us up, bring us all the way to glory. And so Peter sums up after convincing the crowds that there's no way to keep God's law unto salvation. Uh, For Jews, much less Gentiles, he says this in verse 11. Please look there with me. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. It's a wonderful statement of faith. Saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's all right there. And Peter says to a bunch of Jews listening intently, if you think that Gentiles need to become like you to be saved, you've got it backwards. You need to become like them in the sense of forsaking that, that law as a means of, of salvation. We need to become like them. We need to rely on grace alone. We need to rely on that internal work of the Spirit, not on the externals of the flesh. And so that's a humbling moment for Jewish believers Where they're told every single person, if they're going to be saved, is saved the same way. Whether you grew up as as a a law-abiding, pharisaical Jew, or if you're some Gentile who has never even heard of Moses, you're saved by the same way. Do you recognize, friends, that everyone is saved the same way? Take uh, the most depraved person that you could think of. If they're to be saved, it, it requires the very same thing if you are to be saved, which is God's unconditional and unfailing love. Uh, it requires just as much for God to save the righteous as to save the sinners. It requires just as much from God, the death of his son. And it requires just as little for, for the righteous as sinners to receive that salvation, which is faith. There is truly level ground at the foot of the cross. It's a humbling 
reality, it's important for us to understand if we're going to get the gospel right, we are all sinners in need of saving, and that salvation looks the same for all who believe they receive the grace of God through the merits of Jesus Christ. Do you get that? Do you get the gospel right? That's Peter's explanation. That's how he explains his position, and it's powerful. The crowd falls silent. Seems like that maybe could be the end, but two more things take place. Second, we have Paul and Barnabas share their experience very briefly. Verse 12 says that they talk about the signs and wonders done on the mission field, and the people are moved by that. The fact that Gentiles come to Christ and are not required to submit to the law of Moses. And then finally, the final contributor to the debate is James, the brother of Jesus, author of the epistle that bears his name, the head of the Jerusalem church. He gets up and he gives an exposition in that he He says, well, Peter says we can go back to the early days when the church began. I can go back even further, and that's to the prophets. I can go back to the Old Testament and tell you this has always been the way it's gone. And he begins by quoting Amos 9, a prophecy that states that when God restores the line of David by sending the Messiah, it won't just be for the sake of David or David's line, David's house. It will be so that the remnant of mankind, all mankind, may seek the Lord. All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. And then he tags a line from Isaiah 45 at the end, that this is known from of old. That's Isaiah 45. So he's saying a grace-based salvation for the whole world is nothing new. God came to Abraham in Genesis 12 in grace. He, He elected him freely, and he said, through you and your descendants, All nations, all peoples will be blessed. By the same grace in which I'm coming to you, that grace will come to them. That's why James says in verse 15 that that Peter's words of explanation, he says, agree with the words of the prophet. With this, the words of the prophets agree. The the word agree in Greek is, is the word symphonio. You can hear our English word symphony. It means to make a harmonious sound. And, and, and James is saying that all of God's revelation, old and new covenant scriptures alike, they come together in a beautiful harmony to tell one story of one salvation. And they come together to make this one sound, and that sound is grace. There's a beautiful uh, old hymn that says, uh, Grace, tis a charming sound, harmonious to the ear. Heaven with the echo shall resound, and all the earth shall hear. And so we have James' conclusion in verse 19. He says, Therefore, my judgment, because this is what the Scriptures have always said, is that we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. And we need to just note two things that are really essential at this point. That it it takes two major components for the gospel to be affirmed and articulated correctly. Two things. The Word, the Word of God, the Scriptures... And the church, the people of God. These two together, the word and the church, the word and God's people, the the, the covenant content and the covenant community, these two are the indispensable foundations for, for orthodoxy, right believing, right thinking, but also orthopraxy, right living. James would not have come to this conclusion unless he had the word of God and unless he believed that word. Why would he quote Amos 9 and Isaiah 45 unless he believed that God's word was true? 
And so it starts there. You, you can't get the gospel right when you have a deficient or defective understanding of the scriptures, a view of the scriptures. It starts there. We're saved when, when we open our Bibles or, or when a preacher opens his Bible or a friend opens their Bible and they share with us and they read to us or we read this statement that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.23. Or, or we're saved when we read and when we believe, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. It is when the Spirit opens our eyes to see and, and softens our heart to believe those words that were saved, but we need those words. We need the Scriptures. And the Spirit that convinces us to believe the Scripture is the same Spirit that wrote the Scriptures, inspiring those men of old to write, inspiring Paul to, to write Romans 6 and Ephesians 2, and Amos to write Amos 9, and, and Isaiah to write Isaiah 45. The Spirit that convinces us that the Gospel is true is the same Spirit who has inspired every jot, every tittle of the scriptures. And so we can't say, I'll take this, but I won't take that. It starts with the inerrancy, the infallibility, the, the reliability of the word of God. Because I believe God is true, because I believe God doesn't lie. When I read his word and he tells me I can be saved by grace alone, I take that and I take the whole thing with it. This is where we need to start. This is the foundation. We need our Bibles. But James is working through the word of God in the setting of the gathered church. It's not just him kind of pontificating on his own in his study. The church has come together to rightly interpret God's word. That, that's by God's design. He gave his word not to a person but to, to a people. And it's been through the spirit-aided efforts of that people that his word is preached and interpreted from the beginning of time until the end of time. We're not left to our best guess when we open up our Bibles. Uh, we're not left to ourselves. We have creeds, we have councils, we have confessions that where, where God in his sweet providence has brought together his servants, the best of his servants, to draw out the meaning of his word. We have our own churches and you think of the context of our own church where somebody our own denomination where where men go through a very rigorous process of, of seminary study and then ordination exams to ensure that they get the word and they believe the word and then they come and they preach and they are under the uh, the oversight of, of a local body of elders you know tom perry and brian every time we have a session meeting they go over my sermons and make sure i'm not just saying whatever i want to say up here beyond that we have the presbytery other ministers who i'm held accountable to the church comes together to get the word right this is the biblical pattern proverbs 11:14 where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So if you want to know God's word properly, and if you want to live out its implications most effectively, you need a Bible, and you need a church. Now James goes on to include, in verse 20, four prohibitions that must be underscored to the Gentiles. Okay, you don't need to follow the law of Moses, you don't need to be circumcised, but he says it would be good to tell them that they should abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now that might seem kind of counterintuitive at first, right? They just made this whole, whole big issue about being grace alone, and then he gives them four things they need to do. Dennis Johnson is helpful. He explains that taken together, these practices constituted 
a complex of pagan, idolatrous worship in which Gentiles who trust in Jesus must no longer participate. Here's the point. To become Christians, Gentiles need not become Jews, but they certainly cannot remain pagans. And we know that to be true. If, you, if, you're, if you're saved, you know that your life after Christ looks a lot different than your life before Christ. We give up things. We, we change our behavior. And, and we begin, when we begin following him, there needs to be a change. When you get the gospel right, there will be a change. That's all that James is insisting on here. Now, getting the gospel right is not the only responsibility of the Christian or of the church. It is a major responsibility. But notice that once we get the gospel right, we are compelled to get the gospel out. We must get the gospel out. And that's what happens in the remainder of this section. A letter is written. Missionaries are sent to proclaim the truth. That decision that's um, been made by this council. Uh, People need to hear the news. And, And the gospel, when it's rightly understood is good news. I mean, that, that's the meaning after all. If it's not bringing good news to your soul, then it's not the gospel. And that was the issue that these... Well, look with me at verse 24. They say, Some persons have gone out from us and troubled you. They troubled you with words, unsettling your minds. The gospel, when properly understood, doesn't do that. It will only make us... Rejoice! They, they were adding this burden that shouldn't have been there because they weren't preaching the truth. And yet now when the letter goes out, verse 31, when they, that's the Gentiles, had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. When the gospel is right and then when the gospel goes out, people will rejoice. The, the fact that the Gentiles, and they're told, right, you abstain from worshiping idols and you, you abstain from sexual immorality... Further proof that this is not a burden to them. They rejoice in this. They want to know how they can live in the way that God wants, in the way that will please him. They saw in this a life of freedom. Well, perhaps there's someone in your life who needs to be freed from the yoke and burden of bondage. Maybe there's somebody languishing under a cruel master, and they're longing to hear of a grace alone salvation so that they, like these Gentiles, can Rejoice! I, I know there's somebody in your life who needs to hear that. Who might it be? We all have someone that we must get the gospel out to. But you see, friends, we'll have nothing to offer them if we ourselves don't first get the gospel right. God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. Do you strongly disagree? Do you disagree? Are you not sure? Or do you strongly agree? If we can't say what Peter says in verse 11, look there again with me, what he says in verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we can't say that, we don't have much of anything to share with anyone. Can you say today that you believe that you will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus? Can you sing with conviction, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. For us today, even, we thank you for this good news, but we ask that you would give us 
the clarity uh, of right thinking and the conviction of um, of, a, of a true heart to believe the gospel to, to get it right and once that once we are hooked once we are enraptured by this message and, and convicted by it, would we be encouraged and compelled to get that gospel message out? There are so many Lord who are confused, who are suffering, who are being burdened. And we ask that you might even use us to be your messengers, your instruments, that you would speak through our mouths as you once did with Peter, so that a yoke of slavery and bondage could be turned into the light and easy yoke of the kindness of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.